0: Welcome to Season 3 of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time, filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. It is Monday, July 6th, uh, getting closer towards the afternoon after the holiday, non-holiday weekend. We are still in the middle of a pandemic, so much in the middle. We are still in phase one. The numbers are still growing. Um, The last time we spoke to you, LJ, coming to us from New York, was over a month ago there was no political uprising happening. You are still in the thick of really engaging in mutual aid and providing food and delivering it um, to different uh, neighborhoods and spaces of need in New York. And we were talking about organizing, we were talking about what else could happen in this time. And then more people had to die for more folks to care and for more folks to feel that one danger was more dangerous than the other. It was less dangerous to go out with a mask on and be socially distant than it was to go out and interact with the police. So people made conscious decisions to go out and and vote, if you will, with their feet. And you have been in the middle of seeing and witnessing and maybe even organizing and planning some of that. So I'm really interested in giving you the mic to share with us, what have you seen happening in New York over the last month? What is still happening? Why do you think the news isn't covering it anymore? What do you think about the, the, um, conspiracy theory that I have that, that uh, COVID numbers and the news about it was so bad that Trump really instigated um, a lot of this work against the police to happen so that it would be the new news story. And now that we're back to COVID, there might be something else that he whips up so that we're not looking at COVID anymore. And, What is your opinion on self-care during this time when there's so much to do and so much at stake and time really seems to be um, an important character uh, in this story? So it's all yours. Go. Okay,
1: then. So, okay, here's where I'm gonna start. What? Um, what I have been seeing over the past month, uh, I think we're in five weeks now. I think it's been five weeks.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Even, are we in week six?
0: This might be the beginning of week six.
1: I think that it is at the beginning of week six. So. Well, but, of
0: organizing in the street. So I just don't want to get, get okay. that confused with COVID.
1: Right. I don't want to do that shorthandy thing that we do. So, um, I feel like many, many, many times in the past 15 years I have been part of an organization or a project or just a local crew and we have like fixated on an issue and our the issue right now is uh, resettled refugees in uh, in New York City. Our issue is you know, Amazon building a warehouse in our community. Our issue is this pipeline. Our issue is, you know, um, uh, abortion rights, where we have, like, picked the issue and then tried to build a mass movement around it. Sometimes that has worked. A lot of times that hasn't worked. And I feel like what I have been seeing and experiencing and feeling is is the converse reaction of that is there was already and shout out to all the organizers who've been doing the work, not just in the past five years to build Black Lives Matter, but in the generations before that, civil rights, Black Panther Party, and then also before that, before that, before that, before that. So shouts to all the organizers to get us here. But this feels like there was a a movement already that was like, that was fluid and adaptive and like basically was just about the value of black life. And because that already existed, it was, we were able to be like, and like zoom in and narrow in. And it went from being like, here's this kind of amorphous mass movement to now we are like ready to hone in on this super specific demand and to like actually leverage the mass mobilization that was ready to go around defunding the police rather than doing the thing that we have done in the past, which is like, we are gonna fight these uphill battles about minimum wage or about you know, uh, protections in the workplace, or all these things that really matter. Um, but that this has felt like a profoundly different experience um, that, you know, like, yeah, in some ways, I feel like it was impossible to predict. And in other ways, I feel like this was, of course, inevitable And from like, uh, if Neil deGrasse Tyson was here, he would say that like, matter has been in motion since the beginning of the universe to get us to this point. So there has been nothing inevitable. Cue
0: Star Trek music. Okay, but go on. Uh,
1: But really, so so that, you know, there is, I'm sure you have been in these conversations also where over the years we've been like, well, why was it Trayvon that kicked things off? Why, would, why did Trayvon have to die in order for, for this mov- movement to bubble up? Why was it Eric Garner that had to die and why was that a flashpoint? Why was, why was the um, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline this flashpoint? Like that there's something that there's this like cocktail of both a lot of groundwork and also something that is slightly ineffable, I think, about what is in the like collective psyche and the ether and something that moves people at a in a moment um, that we just can't always, you know, no matter how many meetings or panel discussions we have about it, doesn't like move people the way that this seemingly spontaneous moment sometimes moves people. So for me, this was like um, yeah, it was like, I really have to say that, like the, the fact that we had this framework that at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, the framework is black lives matter. So at the bare minimum it, to, to be part of that means that you stand for the value of black life. And then, of course, there are all these other levels of engagement, and you could be an organizer or a white ally or whatever, Um, but that the the kind of like all-encompassingness of that um, was just, um, I've just not seen something quite like this, where it was already kind of in the ether, and people felt an attachment to it, and then it was like all of a sudden people were called to really act upon it. And we weren't doing at least in New York. The the shift to defund the NYPD has been um, really profound on a number of levels. So, for some context, New York has a, has a zillion nonprofit organizations. I'm sorry, um, how many zeros is that? Uh, like 26. So zillion. Got it. Um, New York City has a ton of nonprofit organizations. I love them. I've worked at many of them. I've I've trained even more. Um, but also, I think that the number of nonprofits in New York City circumscribes the way in which New York City's public uh, political activity manifests itself. So there's a lot. What does of, that mean? Meaning that like there's a lot of coalition. There's a lot of like you know steering. Mm, yes. Stuff. There's a lot of like, well, we're doing this rally and we want everyone else to sign on to doing this rally. And there's, I, I think that, you know, uh, that in some ways the kind of professionalization of organizing here prevents us from having a real kind of culture of like rioting and a, and a culture of, and I don't mean rioting at all in like a pejorative way. I mean of like, that I think we 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 don't pop off the way that the West Coast pops off.
0: Oh, here it comes! I knew it was I knew it was coming yeah, somehow.
1: Coming, it was definitely coming. So um, I think that we, but I'm serious. The the um, actions, direct actions in New York City are always tamer. Um, you know, we do a lot of kind of like uh, building the bigger we. Um, but that I don't think that we do escalation very well here in New York City. Obviously I'm making a little bit of a generalization. Um, No,
0: but I I, I think, LJ, like, just to stop you for a second, um, I think there's something really interesting about that. You know, like, what are all the mm, things at play that make East Coast and West Coast organizing um, different, that make uh, the concentration of people, places and institutions Change different dynamics right like we're talking when you say west coast it's like well, where does it begin and end? California is a ginormous state it's the fifth largest economy in the world, wow. right like it's huge geographically does that does the West Coast include Nevada? Does the West Coast include Seattle and Oregon? does it go as far as Arizona? you know like and then when we talk yeah. about New York, I think you bringing up the fact that there are so many nonprofits yeah. in in a very particular you know, geographic space means that if somebody gets politically active at 10, 9, 11, 19, 37 or 55, there is a place, multiple spaces to absorb that. Like I live in Reno, Nevada. We don't have more than like maybe five that I can count on the top of my, you know, on my hand of organizations throughout the entire state. And so the absorption of people who want to get involved, we have a a different situation in Nevada where all these people want to get involved and where do they go? And and there's no place for them to go. So they're like making up stuff. And so there's a lot of fumbling and stumbling and potential danger. Whereas what you're talking about in New York is it's like, let's do something. And you go to this meeting and you figure out what the thing is you're going to do or you don't even have to go to that meeting. You just have to be told when to show up and how to show up because somebody already planned it for you. And so I, I think what's interesting though about what we see in Los Angeles and yeah. in other spaces where the, the uprising takes form and shape of like um, breaking into businesses and taking things and materials and goods out of them is different because I would say that the mutual aid that you have working in New York doesn't necessarily work the same way in Los Angeles. So being able to get the things that you want and you need aren't as accessible. So there's a store down the street, it has them, somebody else broke into it, I'm gonna go in and get what I need because I don't have a tap into some organization or a group of people who are gonna help me get what I need outside of that. But yeah. I hear you. What what else is going on that you think? Like, but don't you also have fancy stores? It's not like they were looting just anything.
1: No. I mean, and I wouldn't call looting. I would call wealth distribution. Did you see the video of people going into the Adidas store and coming out and then be, looking at the jacket and being like, this is small. Who's, who here is a small? Oh, these shoes. These are, these are eight and a half. Anyone here an eight and a half? I was like... I mean that was amazing.
0: So it so, wasn't just it wasn't just taking, it was taking for literally what you
1: needed specifically. Like who's the eight uh, and a uh, half? Who yeah, needs I'm control? sure a couple people probably took it for sure. a pair of sneakers that maybe they didn't need, but also to find need in this moment. Yeah. Like so, Cause
0: you uh, could sell that and get what you really need, which is the exactly. money for rent.
1: or you were taking them for someone else. I mean, it just feels to me. To me, the fact that we had, maybe it was only for a few days, but we had basically a mainstream conversation about whether or not property destruction was legitimate political protest. Yep. And that, we we didn't maybe like, you know, come to consensus about it, whatever. The fact that people were like really actually chewing on that for a couple days is quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. The, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the cognitive rupture that just opened in the past months. Um, I have never, I've never lived through something like that, where it went, where it felt like, you know, we were talking about math a minute ago and this, I feel like we are living right now in a moment of exponential Change, Whereas I would say that most of Trump's term has felt like slogging away, um, trying to like prevent things from backsliding and being like Sisyphus up the hill with the rock. Right. And there have been some really significant victories and I'm not at all discounting the work that people have been doing on the ground. We're living under neoliberalism and fascism and and force it. All of it, all the things. Um, but the the exponential increase in people's, I think, just um, engagement with public dissent yeah. is quite amazing right now. And the one of the either the last time we talked, and we were talking about kind of like the silver lining on the acid rain cloud mm-hmm. of COVID. One of the things we talked about was the potential for people to re uh, reorient their relationship to land. And I was mm-hmm. telling you about how in New York City, that all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be outside. You can't even buy a bicycle in New York City right now because they are all sold out. Like everybody is has has really, i think like re revalued being outdoors and the parks and mm-hmm. public space and green space and bike lanes and these things that we, that many people took for granted. And also that many people were just kind of like, yeah, whatever, a park is nice. All of a sudden it became like really central to life, to being to feeling alive in right. a time of so much death around us. So I think that the also our deprivation to public space, I think that there was this like, like of having been denied access to public space or having restricted yourself in public space, you know, um, but all of us have had our movements um, affected by COVID. Obviously some have more privilege and are able to stay home and some people continue on their delivery routes. But everybody has had their movement in space be affected by COVID. And that is what has made this so amazing is that there's a there's like, I don't know, it's like being on a march for the first time is really what it felt like. I've been on a hundred marches. I'm sure I've been on more than a hundred marches, but I've been on a hundred marches before. And honestly, it felt like marching for the first time.
0: What does that mean? Describe that. What does marching for the first time feel like?
1: That it was like coming back, having been very limited in who I saw, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Having been in you know, like the supermarket regulates how many people are inside, right? Food distribution, but even then, there's only like twelve volunteers inside to be in a crowd. All of a sudden, you know, it was like we forgot what that feeling was. Mm. Um, and i think it just kind of uh i yeah there was something that was just very electrifying about that first week the whole month has the whole six weeks has been life-changing but that first week um it was um yeah i don't i don't know the words are kind of like eluding me because it just felt like when you like we came out of a sensory deprivation chamber <laughs> you know and yeah yeah and it was like a bunch of people like and there were colors and signs and bikes and cop cars on fire and it was like you know it was like ah
0: wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute, cop car on fire that's a little
1: west coasty isn't it yo i never really thought that that was the kind of shit that new york would turn out but so you-, you did it so you did it apparently it is so um yeah it was it was like coming into it was the it was um you know what it was you know what it was it was the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy is in Kansas and it's black and white and then it's Technicolor and it's just all of these things that were around you that you have seen a thousand times, all of a sudden looked different and everything looked brighter and everything was more vibrant. And um, I think people were just like, also genuinely like, oh my God, I've missed you. I didn't know you. I don't even know you now, but I have like missed the feeling of being in presence of other people, Um, particularly being in presence of other people in the name of like a higher power or a a common good. So I'm rambling a little bit because the whole thing has been kind of really hard to describe, but like on, on one of the first marches across the Brooklyn Bridge, this is like week one of the uprising. We're walking across the Brooklyn Bridge. I've done this before. I've done this in marches before. You know, a lot of people in New York are like, I don't give a fuck you know, whatever, like people in New York are tough and have big skin and they are kind of like not into whatever you're selling. They're not buying it. We walked across the Brooklyn Bridge and Felicia, every single car, every single car was honking. And it took me a minute to like, to re to recalibrate because I'm used to being in actions or marches and everybody's honking cuz it's get the fuck out of the way right you know? right this was everybody honking in solidarity and it i like th- that i realized actually how much my own, how much censorship I had done of my own political possibilities, where I hadn't even thought that that was something that was possible, that every single car in New York City would be honking in solidarity with you because I was just so used to cars being like, get out of the way, whatever stupid little action you're doing, I don't have time for it. Right. That was the thing that like really, really shook me. Um, and still, every single New York City bus driver that goes by honks and, like, throws the fists up and, you know, like, gives you the peace sign. Like, there is a, a, a tr- profoundly unique level of solidarity that is being expressed um, from signs in shop windows to cars honking to bus drivers refusing to, um, Uh, pick up people who were arrested and transport them to Mm. the police precinct. Um, it It is exponentially bigger and more widespread than anything we saw after Trump was elected. And I remember after Trump being elected, I was like, oh, my God, look, people have signs in the window that say, refugees, welcome here. And wow, isn't that cool? This is like, you know, uh... I've just not seen this kind of public culture of solidarity, I think, ever.
0: So, um, so I'm listening to you. Yeah, and I'm you ask me
1: some questions because I'm rambling.
0: <laughs> no, 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 it, you're not rambling, you're reporting. Okay. And I appreciate the report. Um, what I am feeling is a great amount of like joy and happiness and also jealousy. And, and also um, trying to figure out how do you get that? Like, how do you get that? And, and a part of it is what you talked about early on about the generations who did this work that we are just adding our work to it right like this isn't something that started in new york that started five weeks ago this has been on the on the shoulders uh on with the hands being carried up from generations that also laid the groundwork for this to happen including even earlier versions of yourself in the last five and ten years and so i guess what i'm wondering is come on Not everybody in New York, because where do you get these then videos of these like asinine ridiculous in Michigan with their AK-47s and their guns pointing at protesters coming through their neighborhood? Where do you get these like asinine individuals in California after Black Lives Matter has been painted on the asphalt and on the street? They go out on the 4th of July with black paint and paint over it like every place, every corner has the ridiculous other folks who are on the other side in the face of this wave of movement building and, and growth that you're talking about. There's still these, these folks, they might not be honking, but they're yeah. doing something else. And so yeah. are you telling me that you really didn't see any
1: dissent to no. what y'all were doing? I know, and I will tell you that I was marshaling a march two weeks ago and almost got run over by a motorcycle in a Charlottesville style. um, Which is happening more and more. Aggressive. And this is New York City. uh, And so we are kind of like, yeah, okay. Like even the right-wingers are still New Yorkers. And so they're not, you know, they're not like right-wingers in Arizona or they're not right-wingers out in Texas. But I, me and another marshal straight up really almost got run over. And then when we stopped it, he tried again. And then shortly after that, like two hours later, at the very, very end of the march, another motorcycle, different motorcycle, tried to run through the march. So it is absolutely there. And I think also it is with New York City also, it's so funny that we started talking, we started this conversation by talking about math. So in- But we
0: started talking about math without me pressing record. So really quick. What we had talked about was that more is more at this more time more. and that this isn't a time in this movement building to say that isn't good enough. That's not what we need right now. That's not what we need right now. Instead, it's a do it all because we need all of it right now. And that addition is easy for a reason and that division and, and subtraction is challenging for a reason, maybe because it shouldn't be done. Let's focus on addition. Yeah. So that was the conversation ever so briefly we were having before I pressed record. So now keep going.
1: So I was a marshal at the Black Trans March a few weeks ago. That was the... Um, the huge sure. one where it was
0: people were wearing white. Were wearing white. Yes, massive amounts the, of people.
1: There's a very iconic looking photo outside of the Brooklyn Museum where you see this big crowd. So I tend to believe that the media and the police underestimate our numbers. So if their estimate was 15,000, let's say there were 20,000 people out. Let's say that. people in New York City, a city of incredible population density and 10 million people, is actually maybe not like a huge percentage of the population of the city. So, the People's Climate March, I think, turned out almost half a million people. Mm. And still, if you walked like two blocks west of the march, you didn't even really have a sense that there was a march of half a million people going by. So it's fa- what's fascinating to me is that the numbers, we're not talking about historic numbers from a mathematical perspective we're talking about something that has, even though there may only be, have been 2,000 people out on the march this past weekend, and 2,000 people in New York City is like two apartment buildings, know what I'm saying? Like, so maybe there were only 2,000 people, but the impact of that, like the math is magic. Actually, because the 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 way that those two thousand people are being perceived right now is like as a massive outpouring, and so that I think is like is is um really interesting. Where we're not there's something that's that's different right now about the way that two thousand people show up, or the way that even a hundred people show up. Somebody was sending me pictures from Vermont, and it was like fifty people out, and the headline was like the whole town turns out you know what i mean so there's there's like some actual magic happening in the in the math
0: I saw a story of a single man in some like random town that I can't even remember and probably won't. And the one man with a sign out that said defund the police in Black Lives Matter made headlines, right? Like that, yeah. it's also that kind of magical math that like in the middle of a pandemic where yeah. people usually aren't coming out and supporting Black Lives Matter, that one farmer in the middle of nowhere is magical because that never happens. Right. The one becomes Uh, super powerful.
1: Yes. It's like an absence and presence thing that it's not, we're not actually dealing with like quantity. It's like a qualitatively different kind of experience that one person actually is like in, in like magic movement math is equivalent to the whole town coming out. Like that there's, that there's a, yeah, there's just like a transformation happening. And the, 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 uh, I do want to talk about the locals, like the defunding the police. But the last thing I just want to say about the whole experience of it is that there was like two weeks that you did not have uh, me, my friends, we didn't, we, were, we didn't know where the march was. We just knew that at 2 p.m and at 5 p.m. and at 7 p.m. and at 9 p.m., they would go by our houses because there were just that many people out. And so from a weird magic mathematical perspective, you were just bound to find yourself in a march you were just, go- it was inevitable that the march would go down your street because there were only so many streets in New York City and there were that many people out. That honestly, it was like, we would just pick a corner to meet up on and then we'd pick a direction to walk in. And then 30 minutes later, we'd be in one march. An hour later, we'd be in a second march. Like it was, um, uh, it, it, a- It's, a- it's what, you're, what you're describing is to make getting
0: involved in some kind of movement work, inevitable. Like you can't, you have to really work hard to avoid it. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the magic of this moment. Towns where it's really hard and you've never seen one and it never goes by your house, it's really hard for you to just like show up and make it happen. But for areas and cities where it's like, it's really hard for you to avoid it.
1: It was the opposite going on. What I had wish, in retrospect, what I wish I had done during that time was ask the people who, were out, who went out their window to cheer or went down to their stoop, what prevented them from joining the march? And that could be a million of pragmatic things. It could be, I have a baby upstairs. I'm, you know, compromised. I, like I, it's not comfortable to walk. It could be a million answers, but I was like really interested in what the like psychic thing was because with some people, including like my neighbors who I'm super, super friendly with, the people that live across from me, the people that live below that I was like, what's up you guys? Like, you know, where that they, that it was like so joyful to see the march go by. And yes, it was making it so easy to join literally the marches outside your house. Um, and so that I was very, inter- I'm, I still am very interested in what the kind of psychic, shift is that people needed to feel whether that they needed to be invited more or that it wasn't for them or that it was glad that they were happening, but it wasn't something that they would do. So there's still a lot, I think of like, in terms of the like psychic and emotional terrain of people feeling like they belong in movement work. I think that there's still a lot to explore there.
0: Well, I think there's also something too like, you know, who are you doing the movement work for if not right. so that people can make a choice to stay home and, right. and, and encourage you to plot out? Like everybody does have a role, including right. the people to just step out of their windows and say, thank you. And we're with you exactly. and we're here.
1: And actually there was one day that I was like, you know what I want to do? I was like, I don't want to march. What I want to do is drive on the Brooklyn Bridge and then get stuck in a march so I can just be that person that wails on the horn. Um, because actually it was the people who didn't come out, but it was the people that were, that were banging the pots and pans from their window that the March would really go crazy for, you know, it was like Beyonce showed up everywhere like, ah! when someone came out with the pot and p- pots and pans. So yes, there was like that sense of interconnectivity and there was no shade of like, why aren't you joining us? Or why aren't you out here? Or like, aren't you down? Or you're not hardcore enough? So yes, there was this kind of like spectrum of participation and spectrum of solidarity that um, uh, that was super cool. I mean, the night before the New York City budgetary vote, we were outside making noise outside Corey Johnson's house. Corey Johnson is the speaker of the New York City Council. Mm-hmm. And so we were just kind of like, you're not going to sleep tonight because this is a really important boat. And we're going to let you know that this is real important to us. And um, these folks came by and were wailing on their horn in their car. Yeah. And so much that they broke the horn. So then we started chanting, we broke the horn. We broke the horn. We broke the they, horn. We they were
0: the horn. honking their horn so much that it broke.
1: Yeah. I didn't even know you could break a car horn that way. I didn't know you could break a car horn <laughs> But then it was like new chant. We broke the horn, we broke the horn. I mean, there's been some
0: really good chants. And I I gotta say, I don't know about New York, but have you seen the West Coast chants that are really like full on dance parties and songs with like bands? Like they're in a concert on the West Coast in the Bay Area in particular. They're like dancing and moving. It's a whole salsa sort of like march going down a particular town. New York, I haven't seen seen dancing. I mean, dancing in the street static. But not while marching, LJ. Just gonna there say. There
1: has definitely been some dancing and I was lucky enough to be on a, mar- a marshal at like a New Orleansy kind of themed second line march that was really beautiful, that had a band leading and- Okay,
0: you know- I did oh, see that one.
1: Yeah, so that was pretty dope. Um, I will say that I have seen some like, you know, yeah. The West Coast brings it. Like... <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm diehard New York. And also sometimes the West Coast brings it. But I do think that there has been also a particularly celebratory kind of note to a lot of this. Not just celebratory, but the – and you and I have talked about this before, and we've talked about it in story-based strategy trainings, narrative strategy trainings, where I feel like um, uh, a lot of our political activity, like protests and actions, we have a – We only seem to use a couple of different tones. We use the like moral righteousness, or we're very earnest, or we're angry, Mm -hmm. and we're gonna tell you. But we don't use, hey, we're so like cute and sexy. We don't use like, this is so playful and subversive. We don't use This is like super joyful and celebratory. We don't do like melancholy, like melancholy itself is such a profound, profoundly like dimensional emotional experience that I think actually speaks to a lot of what the past month has been around people had to die in order for this to happen, and also there is this like proliferation of Black joy that we're seeing. So I think that we, like, the the emotional terrain has really grown exponentially uh, in ways that feel very exciting to me in thinking about what political possibilities we have moving forward, yes. action and expressions of dissent, that it no longer feels like, you know, those caricatures of, like, save the whales, I'm earnest as fuck, yeah. that it, You know, that there's and I to be that also, I think, is a reflection of increasingly people of color being at the uh, at the center and at the forefront of these movements. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, to me, the kind of like uh, the iconic stereotype of the of the activist with the Save the Whale sign is like a middle aged white guy. Um, and I think that we, as the more our movements are led by, um, people of color and the more they are infused with culture and historical experience and like, you know, emotional, um, dimensions, I just feel like it's, uh, uh, we're just, it's a completely different, um, Uh, experience. I'm like really struggling with the words because it's, it's, there's an (laughs) ineffable. But really, I'm like, I wish people could see how much my hands are moving right now. But Lots of
0: hands movement. Lots and lots of hand movement, people.
1: You know, I went to college and I went to grad school and we talk about, you know, in anthropology and sociology and whatever, and you talk about kind of like, like the ineffable as a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is what this moment is, is that you can't exactly describe it. You can't exactly put words to it because the words kind of don't exist in, in the English language, I would say. Um, to call it protest, to call it looting, to call it rioting, like, to call it marching, those are like not actually the words to describe what is a collective um, emotional, Transformation, I mean the marches are themselves miniature journeys um, it 's mm. so weird that we would call it like a march so more hand
0: movements for those of you listening more hand movements, but now they were hand movements of someone marching so here here's here's something that I, I want to ask you then if if okay. we 're having a hard time with finding the right or the most accurate words to describe what you saw and what you were a part of, let me ask you this, before you started marching, before you started getting involved outside of your home, outside of mutual aid, but for the purposes of exercising and being a part of collective uh, power building, where did you feel it in your body?
1: Before where were you feeling the most, happened? yes,
0: before this happened, where were you feeling the most tense and stress and maybe even pain? Where were you I, feeling things?
1: I hold, I hold a lot of feelings in my legs, particularly my calves, and I hold a lot of stuff in my, in my back. And I had actually felt like I was holding on to this glimmer of optimism in March and April of being like, look at the mutual aid that's happening. And yep. even though my body feels like a sandbag, you know, like this is this is gonna be a cognitive rupture and we're gonna like see a proliferation of political activity that comes out of this moment. And things things kind of didn't stick. Yeah. You know? May first came around and New York City had 50 buildings that rent went on rent strike and 50 buildings is 50 buildings, but also in the theme, in the continuation. Right. Right. The buildings is two blocks in New York city. That yeah. is not mass movement around canceling rent. Right. This is also no shade. It's a very bold move to like yeah. do that work.
0: And it's, and it's going to be built on because more people are going to be threatened with evictions in the coming Absolutely. months.
1: But it didn't have, I think people were expecting to go to scale up. Yeah. Very quickly. Yep. That wasn't happening. And to be honest, really two weeks before the uprising happened, I felt like I had been pushing myself and like forcing myself to stand up straight every day and be like, mm-hmm. it's okay, it's okay. We're going to come out of this. And like, oh, there's going to be new like crews and there's going to yeah. be new aid projects. And there's going to be new spaces that open up because landlords are going to abandon their properties. And we're going to just like you know, see all this, all this political activity spiral outwards. And I felt like I had been trying to convince myself of that. And And so now. Two weeks I had started, two weeks before the uprising, I felt like I had started to like slump and been Mm -hmm. like, maybe that's not going to happen. And then all of a sudden there are, a countless numbers of young people, I don't know, 18, 19, 20, 25, 30, whatever, who suddenly in New York City are like, because New York City has a lot of transient young people, you mm-hmm. know, people that come for school or people that come to work in the service and
0: sure.
1: do art or whatever. And historically, that is generally a difficult population in New York City. to They don't they don't necessarily fill out the census. A lot
0: of apathy, yeah.
1: To vote. Apathy, I think, is a problematic kind of way of framing it, but they're not actively engaged in uh, their local civic happenings. All of a sudden, people are like, oh, my city council member is Lori Combo, or my city council is Stephen Levin. And you're like, oh my God, like that. Like that to me was like, like New York City council politics is like never the kind of sexy flashy shit um, mm-hmm. that people wanna do work around. And so all of a sudden, and, and I will say that like the organizers of the, the week long occupation at City Hall, they did this really well. And there was political education sessions every day about the, the structure of city government, about, you know, the importance of the city budget. New York City's budget is $88 billion a year. So that's like four Jamaica's. $88
0: billion a year is the yeah. city of New York's budget.
1: Yeah, so that's like a country. Um, so w- this is, so city council members, city council members have quite a lot of money, have quite a lot of power if they're handling that kind yeah. of money. So- um, So let
0: me get back to the part that you were talking about. Yeah. Where do you feel it now in, in body. your body?
1: Um I will say that my uh, hmm, I feel um my legs hurt like fuck um from walking so much um but also I feel obviously I feel a lot of excitement in my hands mm-hmm. and I feel very ready to get to work Um, obviously we still have like a lot of boulders to push up the hill, but, um, I feel like the political weather has changed in a way that I don't know if people just like, I don't know. I have a little bit of a theory that for middle-class people or white people or middle-class white people or whatever, there was covid provided them some kind of experience of disposability mm-hmm. that was um, that for middle-class people, particularly middle-class white people was a new experience and made them uncomfortable. And their president, even though, even though lots of people would be like, that's not my president, like were being treated like their lives and their bodies were disposable. Um, and I, I think that there is something, you know, we always say, like, we talk about moksha and your liberation is my liberation and you're not free unless I'm free and that all this is interdependent. Um, but I think, I think that I hope, particularly that white people are showing up in a different way right now, because even though it cannot at all compare to generations uh, and generations of um Displacement and diaspora and and uh, bondage that there was something I think a visceral feeling in people's bodies of fear of vulnerability of disposability um that shook people I think and that I think black lives matter sounds and feels very different in in a moment of um where a million people have died in this country of illness yeah you know and where black people and people of color and indigenous people remain more at risk than white people so i have some quick
0: questions for you
1: yes please
0: number one yeah uh what do you think you know, middle, upper class white folks or even, you know, working class white folks who are angry right now, being willing and able and confident in saying things like white power and painting over Black Lives Matter things or getting on that motorcycle and being willing to maybe go to jail um, and and end their life as they know it for running you over. Like, what do you think those folks are feeling and thinking right now? what's making them have those thoughts and feelings and and you know possible uh actions that they're willing to take um,
1: i i think a lot of that is fear i think um, i mean what is that the we can say like you know that those are actions informed by white supremacy but to echo what you're saying of like, the questions you're asking of like, where do you feel that in your body? Like what's at the root of that? I don't think, I don't think trying to run me over is ideologically driven. That is like a visceral kind of. Reaction. Someone has reaction. And so I think it is, some really deep-seated fear. I think a part of it is the indoctrination around competition and scarcity and, you know, that white supremacy is, is, um, you know, that in order for white people to to be white, they need to be, um, uh, like, white doesn't exist without black, right? That there needs to be the other in order to define the dominant. But I just... Um I don't you know I can't I there is a Yeah, I I think that it is fear and I think it is fragility. Um and I think that it is um hatred, but I think really at the at the bottom of hatred is like a lot of fear. Um and a lot of probably also like unwillingness um, to see either like your true self or to be open to other kinds of people or other kinds of experience i don't really know the whole the the stuff in michigan like protesting because i want a haircut yeah to me is it is an easier kind of thing to understand because i'm like oh you just don't think this affects you you just actually are that self-centered where you are just like I'm fine. You are infringing upon my rights because I still hold on to this belief of freedom as being me doing whatever I want to do. Like that to me is a kind of like absurd selfishness that that feels easier to read. Right? I don't know why someone's trying to like to run over us.
0: Okay. Um, Next, next question.
1: Sorry, uh, no, no,
0: that's okay. I think that's totally fine. I think, honestly, I think that is the next place we need to go. Yeah, I think, I think that what we want and what we're thinking, that there's enough momentum behind it and enough specificity of how we get there that folks are willing to join who, or support who maybe haven't always been in the past. But I think what makes people hate us to the point where they're willing to either tear down people's masks and intentionally cough in their face or get in a car or motorcycle and intentionally run somebody over. Like, I think uh, figuring out what they think and what's behind what they want has to be something that at some point somebody figures out, because if not, this is going to be the constant, the constant fight. And by and large, they have the money, they have the power and they have the guns.
1: Yeah, totally. And
0: so and so there's only so long we can avoid really thinking about that and what we're going to do about it. And I think it's it happens. I mean, I think I think there there are family members who are trying to hold people accountable. We're seeing that right now. We're on TikTok. You have um, the daughter of Kellyanne Conway, who's getting asked all these questions and talks all this smack about her parents. You've got Trump's niece writing a book about how this is a series of generations of trauma that have created uh, the leader of of the United States right now being such an incredibly, you know, fascist, uh, tyrannical leader. And she's like, yeah, I saw this coming as his niece. So I think that, you know, when you talk to your families and you go and and talk to your extended family members, at some point you're going to get to the point of having to have that conversation with uh, Uncle Donald or not. Um, But I think that the other thing that I'm interested about that I wanted to ask you is, You know, we have today uh, final legal uh, standings about the Dakota Access Pipeline not uh, moving forward anymore. We have earlier, uh, last month, talk about affirmative action coming back in the UCs when that was taken away 25 years ago. And we see these changes starting to happen when we include that additional math of all the things. It's going to take everything. It's going to take legal precedents. It's going to take electoral organizing. It's going to take on the ground direct action organizing. It's going to take yoga and meditation and taking a break. And it's going to take all of those things. But I guess what I want to know, and this is just a quick yes or no answer. Do you think that the numbers and the movement work and successes that you've seen in the last five going on six weeks would have happened if there was no COVID? Yes or no? No. Do you think that this kind of movement work and power building would happen if Obama was still president?
1: Um, that's trickier because Black Lives Matter emerged under Obama's presidency. Yeah. So I- And his
0: solution was to create a bunch of task forces to do a lot of research and no action.
1: I, I do not think this particular six weeks would have happened in this way without COVID. Do I think there would have been other flashpoints where black people would have been killed by the police and there would be moments of uprising? Yes, because we had already seen that pre-COVID. We've seen that for hundreds of years. So um, so I do, I do not think things would have played out necessarily this way with Obama, but also, you know, Black Lives Matter formed under Obama, like... New York City has a mayor who is white, married to a black woman. Their children are black. The mayor's daughter was arrested for protesting. And the NYPD doxxed her. And her father, the mayor, sided with the police and continued to defend them, even though that morning, the police had doxxed his daughter. And made her, as a black woman, so fundamentally unsafe. And her own father, like, took the side of the police. So, um, it's. I feel like it's. It's kind of. I don't know. Like, I think it's less about who is the person in charge, and more about the kind of like collective. Vibe, what is like in, but
0: don't you think who the person in charge is what also creates the collective vibe, right?
1: Totally, of course, because Trump empowered all of those white supremacists, white supremacists were there before, yes. Um, yes.
0: But we didn't know their names, where they worked, and just how many of them were in all these different areas and institutions. So then here's the next question for you. Do you think the um, actions and the movement work that you have seen over the last six weeks would have happened if the call would have just still remained the value of Black Lives Matter without then the specific ask to defund the police? How important... Uh was the addition to then incorporating a very specific, concrete, um, you can mold it to your particular city and state's needs, demand of defunding the police.
1: So I have, so people that I know um, who share lots of our same values in politics were like, that's a word I've never heard before, defund. I don't know what that means. Defund the police, I don't know what that means. Um, I do think-
0: Were they that, asleep when Congress was talking about defunding Planned Parenthood?
1: That, well, that actually, I that, that to me, that meme storm that happened around, you think defunding the police is impossible until you realize we've been defunding, public education, abortion services, healthcare, workers' rights. Like, we've been defunding all of these other areas. So that actually, I felt like, was talk about a pivot. That was one of the most successful narrative interventions I feel like I've seen ever, where instantly it was like, oh, you don't get this? Well, let me just reframe it for you. So that was super powerful. But I, I do think that... Black Lives Matter had enough cultural capital and meant enough that, that we would have seen um, really sustained uprising. I think it would have played out quite similarly here. I think we would not have had the escalated action of the occupation outside City Hall, because albeit a symbolic tactic, because City Hall is not actually me. The city council isn't meeting in city hall because of COVID, right. so the symbolicness of that tactic. So I think we wouldn't have escalated it to there, um, but I do think that actually, yes, that that the combination of COVID and um, and the groundwork for this moment. I think even if it had not transitioned to defund the police, we would have seen a continued sustained uprising around. Um, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. When I first started this- went to this, to me, defunding the police is actually the perfect scale for a demand because it is yeah. specific enough to narrow it into one sector of society and not do the thing that people love to do, like us, where we're like, let's take down capitalism, let's take down racism. It was like, here's a specific enough pillar of power that we need to knock down but also it's broad enough for you to shape it to your local circumstances. So props to the Movement for Black Lives who made that pivot very quickly and strategically.
0: And what's interesting, right, is that the idea of uh, supporting defunding something isn't something that the left and progressives made up. It's literally from the page book of the right where they hold the purse strings and hold the power to determine what gets funded. And so they've been defunding all these things for decades. And we see the effects of it, but it also takes a long time to feel the initial effects of defunding something. So this idea of defunding the police isn't going to be felt rapidly. It is a slow movement building idea. Idea of taking it away and yeah. seeing then what comes of it but at the same time, during this COVID-19 pandemic, we've also seen the right co-opt the message of my body, my choice, right? So we are literally switching roles in the extremes between the left and the right. We're saying, oh, you say that? I'm going to use that. Oh, you say that? that I'm going to use that. And so so we have literally done a perspective role swap, right? Let me look at it from your side and see how you use it. And now we use, let me use it differently. And so, what I find interesting about this time is that it wasn't one or the other. It has been both of us sharing and using each other's tactics and the, my body, my choice so doesn't work right now. And yet it, it, when the right has co opted the idea of my body, my choice, which is mostly a pro-choice idea, right? I should have access to abortions because it's my goddamn body. I should determine whether I'm having a child or not, whether I can get pregnant or not, all of that. That's mine. And on the right, they're using that for haircuts and bars and hair dyes and getting your nails done. And yet, and yet, so if we're talking about values, If we're talking about values and doing work grounded in values, I can't help but think about those folks who need their hair and nails and everything else done and go, you're right you should be able to get your hair cut. You should be able to get your nails done. You should be able to do everything because you've just called out my value, which is that it is your body, your choice. And so I guess what I'm trying to figure out is in these moments where we're like, yeah, you know what we should do? We should should make sure that the police get arrested and the police go to jail. Well, how can we say the police should go to jail if we're abolitionists? So how can so like right. how how do our values actually play out in this moment where they're also sort of like revealing and surfacing some of the contradictions in them. And I totally agree with you that we couldn't have even gotten to the point of defund the police if we hadn't out the gate started with the value of black lives matter. Don't they? Right? Like so I get how we get to all these different places and I guess what I'm what I'm struck by right now is how quickly we went from talking about people's health and lives in the systemic beast of healthcare and um, wearing the mask and doing something for someone else and how quickly we went to, yeah, defund the police, we can get out and I can do something with my body and I can risk my ability to get somebody else sick because it's more important than anything else right now in this moment. So. You know, when I started out this podcast, I asked people to think about a time in their life that they had made it through and if they could adapt it here. And you started talking about the hundreds of marches that you've been to and how this time is different, right? And the whole name of the damn podcast has been there, done that. And I guess there's a part of me that's like, we have been there and done this moment too. Black Lives Matter didn't start because of the police. It started because of people feeling like they should police one another. George Zimmerman was not a police officer. Trayvon Martin was a child. And when we go back even further, Emmett Till was a child. The people who killed him were not police officers. And so it goes back to the earlier question. We have to maybe start considering what is our political campaign going to be to talk to the people who are not police. but who feel like they should be policing their neighbors, policing their neighborhood and policing people who are black, all the white folks who have guns or who have paint or who have, you know, gall and empowerment to feel like they can police others. They scare me more because no defunding of the police is going to defund the power that they have. I
1: want to say two quick things to that, because that, um, And I'm gonna try not to ramble in a way that will detract from your brilliance because what this is actually, this brings us to what just happened in New York City, which is New York City says, we defunded the police by $1 billion. That's what you asked of us. Hey, you organizers, that's what you wanted. You said $1 billion. And we gave
0: you what you wanted.
1: Most of that, was that they took the line item out of the NYPD budget that said school safety officers, took it out of the NYPD, put it into the Department of Ed, and now school safety officers exist within the Department of Ed. Are those people still policing black and brown children? Yes, Yes. they are. They are just doing it in the Department of Ed. And so I think also as we are thinking about so for me, huge lesson learned in what it is that I mean, how, what our demand is and that defund the police can be this framework that needs to be applied kind of locally. But New York City ain't seeing shit when it comes to change on how many officers are going to be out on the streets. Right. So those numbers well coming back to math,
0: coming math, back to math, math
1: the same. So in terms of like, so now we have police that just exists in the Department of Ed. And especially as we're thinking about this moment of like, well, what we want to see, I think of another like really important thing that we've seen in the past six weeks is the left's ability to articulate what we want and not mm-hmm. just what we don't want. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing, hey, we should have mental health uh, crisis team. Right. We should have addi- addiction specialists. We should have youth counselors. But also I'm seeing a lot of people being like, and we'll just retrain police officers to be.
0: Right. Right. No
1: specialists. And yes, people have a tremendous amount of capacity to change. And also exactly what you are saying is that the concept of people policing each other, especially white people policing black and brown and indigenous bodies is something that like, you know, uh, mental health training is not going to um, right. do. So I'm with you a thousand percent on that. And the last thing I want to say about that is because I feel like in one of the other interviews we talked about me being a dancer and how that is like in shape mm-hmm. my political work and in dance, like the, fun, like the foundational principle of dance is, a, is bodies in space. It is not just your body, but your body exists in space. Um, And so it is like, not just my arm moving, but it is how the space around my arm is impacted by my arm moving. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a lot, like just from that concept um, that was missing from the COVID discussion around interdependence and impacts on each other and bodies in space That it wasn't just, it's my body, you know, like, like I can get a haircut. No, because you're missing the like fundamental principle of COVID or pandemic for that matter, which is that our bodies exist in space Um, and how we move circum, like how we move through space affects other bodies. So, um, which feels fundamentally different than a kind of like, You know, well, I am pregnant, and this is inside my body, and I have, you know, what I think is very legitimate claim to say what I want to happen. Versus, I want a haircut, which means someone else has to come open the store, someone else has to cut my hair, someone has to clean it up, someone has to be the bus driver, and right,
0: right, right.
1: There's this huge ripple. uh, impact. But I and, and yet
0: I think they're somehow still connected, you know, like I think people yeah. who decide to terminate a pregnancy are thinking about all of those other people and themselves and making that determination for themselves. I mean, okay. clearly you and I could stay on this on this topic and, and could keep talking for a very long time, but we shouldn't um, all at once. So I want to ask one last question and then I do have to let you go and we will talk again. Which is, you know, I don't know that you've been watching a lot of television or film during this time, but I do see that you have been, you know, out and, and moving and been a part of all these different kinds of things happening in the last six, six weeks, particularly in New York. So, my question is let's say there was a dance that um, was being made about this COVID 19 moment. And the dance is choreographed in such a way that it is trying to physically embody what you have been going through during this time, including then marching and being a part of this political uprising moment. And so what would the name of the dance be if you saw somebody perform it? What would the name of the dance be? And what would be a description of some of the, the physical gestures and movements that the dancer or dancers would be doing on, on the given stage during the dance? So what is the name of the dance and can you describe some of the physical gestures and, and body movement that the dance would incorporate? And, and if you could describe the music, is it slow? Is okay. it fast? Is it loud?
1: Um, I, oh my God, this is such a fabulous question. I think, all right. My gut is that the piece would be called movement. Movement being having many different meanings, but because the first half of this experience felt about the restriction of movement And then now this feels like about a moment of encouraging movement and also on the tip of care and caring for ourselves and caring for each other, like moving in and out of of social movement um, so that we can move for longer periods of time. So movement to me is what I think would be the name of the piece. Excellent. And I think that some of the gestures, um, for me, there would be a lot of alternation between, um, there would have to be a lot of like pace change, pace changes, like fast movements and then slow movements and then movements so slow that it feels almost like it's standing still, punctured then by like very rapid movement. Mm -hmm. I think also it has been, Uh, a profound, for me, I will say has been a profoundly disorienting experience in terms of what day is it? What time is it? Like, you know, um, so I'm thinking about like, like turns and the feeling of being dizzy. Um, And then I'm thinking also about convergence and like bodies coming together and joining up with a march you didn't even know what's happening. <laughs>
0: right?
1: And also, though, feeling like, you know what? Because this has been my experience. I've been like, that was enough exposure today. Mm, that was yeah. enough exposure for me. I feel like that was my, I hit my risk threshold. Okay. And also, if I am a non, uh, what is it? Presenting uh, asymptomatic yeah. career, then also I feel like that was enough of, of a risk you know, threshold for other people to be around me. So, um, so that there's this kind of like bodies moving towards each other and away from each other. Um, How would
0: you describe the music? Are there a lot of instruments? Is there only one? What does it sound like?
1: The, um, uh, what does it sound like? I think similar to thinking about speed, it, it is like a, um, uh, it is quiet, it is very loud, it is quiet, it is very loud. I think for me, the like 7 p.m. cheer for essential yeah. workers, like the cheer feels like a defining sound. Uh, New york City we didn 't even get to talk about fireworks, but fireworks are definitely part of the score of this mm. piece and also the night of the 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 night before the New York city budget vote i t- I went out on a march with some folks who were part of a Korean organization here, norutol and they had these amazing drums, and it was like this moody like like somber but yet regal sound. It wasn't upbeat and it wasn't angry. It was just kind of like uh, poignant. And then people kind of started with this syncopated clapping um, and that those kind of drums and things have felt actually like kind of regal at times like to see sovereign black bodies like dressed in all white at the front of the March, you know, like these are regal beings that we're in the presence of. Um, So like those kind of sounds also are coming to mind. And also when I think a lot about the gestures, it's the unconscious stuff that we have and have not been doing. Um, I feel like in the past, really just 10 days people have started to, to do the unconscious, like I'm going to go to hug you. And then yeah. realizing, wait, are we at that level? Um, you know, my boo was waking up in the middle of the night and like semi sleepwalking and putting on a mask mm. in the middle of the night, because having been working in the ICU all day long, he was like, um,
0: gotta go put on the mask
1: but also that the like the the ritualness also and the hyper vigilance that he was like embodying all day where he was sleepwalking and putting on masks and going back to bed so that there's a lot that has changed in our muscle memory also that i think is very interesting to um to think about. I think also the dance piece would include friends hugging other friends. Because of, many of us have been able to, to touch uh, like an intimate partner or somebody that we have like shared um, like our living space with or a family member. But I think so many of us have been the denied the opportunity to touch our friends. Um, and so I think that that I would like to make a dance where lots of friends get to hug each other.
0: (laughs) That, that, that sounds like a good dance. I, I, would want to get in on that. Bringing it back
1: to the earnest. Bringing it back to the earnest. (laughs) Well, thank you for, uh, what? I have one thing to close us out because I've been thinking about it a lot over the past six weeks. So I studied when I was in grad school with an art historian named Robert Ferris Thompson who is amazing in all of the ways. And he used to say God invented black people and black people invented style. And I just feel like we're looking and you're talking about uh, the West Coast and people dancing and we've seen these videos of like of like young queer black people voguing in front of the line of police officers. And just the like editing of these Movement for Black Lives videos like, the fuck the police socks with the tie-dye sneakers. Like, the, the, the visual and sonic um, and, like, uh, kinetic culture. It's just so fucking stylish right now. Like, it's really exciting. So, I just love that. God invented black people and black people invented style. So...
0: And apparently, style invented justice. So here we are. Uh, it's not a. It's not a bad. It's not a bad time to be. Party
1: with shitty wine. Yeah. <laughs> Back to that again.
0: You've been listening to "Been There, Done That," your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.